Thank you. I, uh, I've, I feel like I'm the one should be doing the thanking. I mean, I'm so honored always to come and just to have the privilege. You know, uh, I may have shared this. I probably shared it. I've been here enough times. But uh, years ago, Dr. Walker told me he wanted me to preach. And he introduced me that day as this is the first time I'd ever preached from this pulpit. And I said, actually, that's not true. I've preached in this pulpit on a number of occasions, but this is just the first time there's been anybody here. Uh, because I would go up there and, and, you know, practice my preaching when nobody was there. I feel that way about my worship. You know, whenever I lead worship, it's like I do a lot of worship alone. I just don't do it a lot in front of other people because that's a, a treasure to me. But thank you for letting me be a part of doing that and sharing it with you. And I'm honored to be here. Gary, I count as a dear friend. Thomas and Lisa are a gift to this body. I hope you know how much they are. They're such a blessing. And really, what an honor ever to do anything and let Jesus use us. That's the gift, amen? If you've got your Bible, I'm going to look uh, to begin with in kind of an interesting passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 3. And I'm, sh- I'm calling this message this morning, The Secret to Spiritual Success. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff going around, you know, the three steps to perfect life and, you know, all that kind of thing. But I really will tell you that I believe what we're going to talk about for a few moments this morning truly is the this, this secret to spiritual success. And it starts with kind of a picture that I want to paint for you, and it's found here in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of Eturia and the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. I think I deserve at least a hand of applause over that. (laughs) I've been at it 43 years, so I guess I should be able to do that. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. You know, to begin with, it's fascinating to me that in this one single passage of Scripture, he moves from empire, he moves from empire to a nation, to a state, to a locality, to the ecclesiastical leadership of the known world, all in just a matter of a few words. He goes from the emperor of Rome down to the high priests of Israel. And each one of these individuals, we have some historical account of, and we know a good deal about them. What's most fascinating of all is that he doesn't say, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of the Lord came to Tiberius Caesar. And he doesn't say when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, the word of the Lord came to Pontius Pilate. Nor does he say when these other individuals were tetrarchs of their region. Did the word of the Lord come to them? Nor does it say that when Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene, the word of the Lord came to him. Nor does it say when Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests of the house of God, that the word of the Lord came to them. It says the word of the Lord came to John, and the Bible says the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. You know, I know in the world that we live in, especially here in the West, there's a tendency to kind of baptize the model of significance that the world holds and just kind of bring it all over into our Christian world. 
and to view importance and significance and what matters and success and the things that count that are of importance as being very similar to the way the world views them. And the fact is that we do that. We, we think in terms of size, the bigger something is, the better and the more important it is. The more beautiful it is, the more important it is. The more money in the bank, the more important it is. We, we do a lot of the same kind of valuations. The higher the education or the more, uh, more well-known, more famous the situation, then obviously the more significant or the more important it is. But it's interesting that as the scripture constantly tries to remind us, the Lord does not think like we think and his ways are not like our ways. And they're not even close. Higher than the heavens are above the earth are my thoughts and your thoughts and my ways than your ways. So I don't think like you think. I don't do things the way you do them. So what you tend to think of as important may not be important to God at all. And what we may think is absolutely insignificant and carries no value whatsoever may be the most important thing we could ever do. Because here you have a empire, a nation, a state, a locality, an entire faith and its leadership, and yet the word of the Lord didn't come to any of those people. The word of the Lord came to a man that was in the middle of the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. Why is that? What is the secret to spiritual success? Is the secret to spiritual success the same secret that we would use to talk about worldly success? Do we place the same value on things that God places on them? It fascinates me that the word of the Lord came to John. Where was John? He wasn't in a city center. He wasn't in a university. He wasn't sitting in a throne somewhere. He wasn't in a palace. He was in the wilderness alone. And there was nobody around. Some of you that are here right now, I expressly want to speak to you that think that you don't really have that much significance in the eyes of God. You know, maybe I could have at one time. I could have done what was necessary to get myself in a position to be used of God. I could have, you know, elevated myself. I could have gotten the kinds of pedigrees that I need to be of some value to God. But I don't really have the gifts, or I don't really have the talents, or I don't really have the abilities, or I don't really, didn't really have the time, or I didn't grow up in the right family, or I didn't come from the right side of the tracks, or I, I, I didn't really have the chance because life kind of demanded that I just get to work and do some stuff so I don't really think I can be of much use to God at this point in my life because really do I matter do I count I mean after all I'm not an emperor I'm not the governor of a state I'm not the president of anything I don't have a whole lot of resource my talent is fairly limited but I wonder would you rather be the emperor of Rome would you rather be the Tetrarch? Would you rather be Pontius Pilate? Would you rather be Annas and Caiaphas and have the position and have the opportunity and have the notoriety and have the uh, acknowledgement of men but not have the word of the Lord? For me, I've been in all those places. I've met all those people. I've walked in all those worlds. I'd rather have the word of the Lord than have anything I've ever seen in any other place. I'd rather have the Holy Spirit's guidance 
and more than guidance, his empowerment than I would anything else. And when I began thinking about this, I thought about the picture of a king in the Bible. His name is Uzziah. And it's interesting about Uzziah. It says this about Uzziah in verse 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 26. It says, now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath, he restored to Judah after the kings rested with his father. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned for 52 years. Can you imagine a president that reigned for 52 years? And in Jerusalem, his mother's name was Jeconiah of Jerusalem and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now he went out and he made war against the Philistines and he broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod. He built cities around Ashdod among the Philistines and God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbel and he, against the Maonites and against the Ammonites, brought tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong or exceedingly influential. And Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, the valley gate, the corner buttress of the wall. He fortified them. He built towers in the desert. He dug many wells. He had much livestock, both in lowlands and the plains, and farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and Carmel, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies and according to their role prepared by the scribe Jael and the total number of chief officers of the mighty men of valor were 2,600 and under their authority was an army of 307,500. He made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Uzziah prepared for them entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, slings to cast stones and he made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men Men to be on the, low, the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide. For the scripture says, for he was marvelously helped until. He was marvelously helped until he became strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he trans transgressed against the Lord, his God, by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. It's interesting to me, and somebody, even if it's only one person, needs to hear what I'm about to say to you. I want you to notice that his age was not the secret to his success. He was only 16 years old. Didn't have to do with his age, old or young. His age was not a hindrance to him finding spiritual success. His past heritage was not the problem. The truth is his father didn't follow the ways of the Lord and his father did evil in the sight of God, the Bible tells us. And yet that heritage is not what kept him ultimately from spiritual success. His enemies couldn't keep him from spiritual success. He was surrounded by enemies and yet he defeated them. And God gave him great strength and gave him great power and gave him great ingenuity and cleverness and understanding as to what to do in order to prepare the cities and to get his armies ready. And his enemies could not keep him from spiritual success. It wasn't even his vulnerability or even his simplicity. You know, when he inherited the kingdom, there were no towers. The walls weren't built. They were, they were vulnerable 
And their situation was tenuous, but that did not keep him from spiritual success. The Bible says two things. It says, when he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And the Bible says that he was marvelously helped until he grew strong. And when he grew strong, he got prideful. And when he got prideful, he lost all. You see, what's fascinating to me is there's always a paradox in the things of the Lord. You all know me well enough that you'll never hear me speak that you won't hear me say this. That the two paradigms of Christianity are either you're going to live your life for God or Christ is going to live his life through you. Either you're going to do it with your strength, your ability, your capacity, your ingenuity, your passion, your desires, your intellect, your emotions, your will. Grit your teeth, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and determine you're going to do something for God. Or you come to a place where you recognize, like Paul the Apostle did, where you realize that it's only when I'm weak that I'm strong. When I'm strong, that's when I'm weak. When I think I can do something for God, I've now fallen into self-reliance. I've allowed pride to enter my heart, and the result of that is the Bible says God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humility is a magnet to grace. And what is grace? It's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, power, resource, capacity, ability. All of that comes to the person who walks in an attitude of absolute humility. And there's no greater humility that a man can show than to acknowledge his desperate need for the Lord, not only to tell him what to do, but thanks be to God in the new covenant, he actually promises to do it through us if we'll yield to him and surrender our lives. But you see, if we have the idea that true significance is about empires and about states and true significance is about position influence fame if we think that that's what it's all about then we take the reins and we try and make something of ourselves we take the reins and decide we're going to raise ourselves up to a level of significance based on what we think and the way we do things but the word of the lord didn't come not to emperor, not to king, not to governor, not to high priest. It came to a man who had yielded his life for one purpose only, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Not for the coming of himself, but for the coming of the Lord. To yield himself to the purpose of bringing down mountains and straightening out crooked ways and making rough ways smooth and bringing hills and mountains down and valleys raising them up to get ready for Christ to come. And can I tell you with all sincerity, I believe that there's no different call on my own life. And I'm not talking about preaching. I'm talking about living the Christian life. If, ever, if anything, I want to take every high hill that's in me that would keep him from being able to come forth in my life. Every low hill that would keep him. Every crooked way that would keep him. Every uh, rough way that would hinder or slow down his presence. I want to get everything ready to get out of his way so that his life can be revealed through me. 
And what the scripture is talking about when it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we have a treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power would be recognized as being of him and not of us. Isn't it true that what the Lord really is most interested in and was most interested in in the very creation of mankind was that we would become temples of his spirit that we become vessels of his treasure, that we become branches of his vine so that we would become the conduits of his life being expressed into the world, that we would become as Christ was to the Father. He said, I do nothing of my own. I speak nothing of my own. The works I do are the works the Father's doing. The words I speak are the words the Father's speaking. What I've done is I've made myself, it says in Philippians chapter 2, of no reputation. Humbled myself completely to the very point of death. And now the Father's the one who does the exalting. That's why the Bible says it is God who is at work in us, both to will. It is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do, according to his good pleasure. You see, in the Old Testament, here's a king who prospered just because he did what God wanted him to do. But the good news, in the new covenant, we have an even better deal. Not only does he want to tell us what to do, he says, if you'll yield to my spirit, if you'll let me cut you back as a branch, my life will actually begin to express through you my will. And you won't have to do it for me, I'll do it through you. That's why, again, Galatians 2, verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. Nevertheless I live, yet not I. Nevertheless I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life I'm living today, I'm not living by faith in Mike Atkins. The life I'm living today, I'm living by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, as much as we want to think that we get it, the truth is we still are pretty enamored of the emperors and the kings and the governors and the high priests of this world. We still have a tendency, kind of our default mode, is to count significance almost exactly the same way the world counts it and to count ourselves in relationship to that definition. To place ourselves in the position in this life that we would place ourselves from a natural perspective. Well, I'm here. Everybody else is up here and here and here and here. There are some people here, but I'm kind of here. I wonder if John the Baptist would have done that where he would have placed himself in the world with the animal skins as clothing and locusts and wild honey to eat, sleeping in a desert with scorpions and hot sun. Wonder where his significance, if he counted it that way, would have fallen. And yet I would say to you, more important than the emperor of Rome, more important than the king of Judea, more important than the governor's, more important than the high priests was John. But is that true today? Or was that just then? Is it possible there's somebody in this room that wouldn't catch anybody's eye except God's? 
Is it possible there's an assignment in your life that would never make the front page of any newspaper? Never show up on the front page of Christianity today? But could be as important in the purposes of God as John's relatively brief life was? I can tell you I believe it. I believe it with all of my heart. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, good verse of scripture for you to uh, remember. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has never arisen one greater than John the Baptist. Apparently, God had a pretty high opinion of him. But read on. But he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament. Of men trying to live their life for God. But the first believer was the first person of a new covenant. We're cleansed by the power of his blood, restored by the power of his redemption, qualified by the power of his righteousness, he could come and live inside of us by the power of his spirit. So much so that by God's definition of significance, the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And there was never one born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. But you know, Jesus said something in John chapter three. He says, you must be born again. So not covering every theological implication of what I'm saying, I want to leave you with an idea in your thoughts. What is the true secret to spiritual success? What keeps you from spiritual success? What makes you significant or not significant? Is it your prowess? Is it your intellect? Is it your emotional stability and strength of character and will? Is it your position, your background, your pedigree, your heritage? What is the true secret to spiritual success? Now, I'm not talking about success that everybody sees, applauds, recognizes, and bows to. I'm talking about the one that God sees. What is the true secret? It's total and complete dependency on him for every aspect of of the Christian life. It's not trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder and recommit yourself and rededicate yourself and recommit your recommitment and rededicate your rededication and go back again and go back again and go back again. And I, I didn't do very good last year, but this next year I'm committed to doing better than I did last year because I know next year I can do better than I did the year before and I know I blew it this time and I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it work, God. Just give me some more time and I'm going to do something with my life and make it powerful. What could be more powerful than saying, Lord, you know, I'd really like to be of no reputation except whatever one you wouldn't give me. I'd really like to stop planning the pathway of what I'm going to do for you and start trying to listen to the voice of your Holy Spirit of what you want to will and do through me. 
I'd really like to stop living my life for you and find out what it means to say, nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I'd really like to stop putting so much faith that often is misplaced in what I can bring out and put more faith in what you can manifest through my life. I'd really like to get into a place where I could honestly say, if God says, go to a desert, eat some locusts and wild honey, put on some hair cloth, and just kind of wait and see what I'm going to do, that I'd say, that sounds exciting to me. Why? Because I heard the word of the Lord. I'd love to get you alone one-on-one and spend an hour with you, two hours with you. I'd love to see the body of Christ start to get delivered from the false ideas of what matters into a deep understanding of just how significant every single one of you are, how he created you, how he made you as a a one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-made-again, irreplaceable instrument of his life through which he wants to express himself in the one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-recreated-again person that you are in the places that he wants you to be And that the most significant thing you can ever do in your life is say yes to him. And then watch what adventure he takes you on. Whatever it might be. You know, there's a verse of scripture I quoted earlier and I just want to mention it one more time here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We're carrying about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. It's we who live, who are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He's saying, in essence, the more that I decrease, the more he increases. Isn't it what John the Baptist said when he said, in answer to the question, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a voice calling in the wilderness. Get ready, he's coming. Get ready, he's coming. You know what I do every time I do anything? Whatever it is. Have a conversation with somebody over a cup of coffee. Have a counseling appointment. Preach from a pulpit travel overseas, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, you know what I do is I say, Lord, get me out of your way. Just get me out of your way. Bring down the mountains, race up the hills, remove the crooked way, get rid of the rough way so that you can be seen today in whatever takes place. Just a little while ago, I don't remember exactly, maybe six weeks, eight weeks ago, I was in Ukraine And I flew to Poland and I drove to the border and I crossed the border at about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And I drove in a car to Lviv. I spent the night, I got up the next morning and drove 12 hours to Kiev. And I led a pastor's conference for about 130 pastors from all over all the the different regions of Ukraine. I'd had no idea what I was going to say to them. Not on the plane, not in the car, 12 hours. You'd think God could say something, amen? You know what he gave me? He gave me one word. I'm closing with this, one word. The word was impossible. 
And so I stood up on that first day looking out in the face of 130 pastors, many of whom are literally across the river from where the Russian troops are. I said, the Lord gave me one word for you guys. It's the word impossible. It's that the life that you're being called to live and the witness you're being called to give and the ministry you're being called to offer is impossible. But I said, I want to tell you something. It's always been impossible. The Christian life is not possible. Man can't live it. We can't do it. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It wasn't more possible for Peter to walk on the water if it had been calm than it was because it was a storm. It was impossible for man. The only thing that makes it possible is Christ. Anything you read in here, anything you read in here that is something that you've Recognize as being something to which Christ is calling you is impossible for you to do apart from him. Only to the extent that you live in absolute dependency upon him, yieldedness to him, that you view your entire life as about getting out of his way to allow him to express his life through you. Only to that extent will anything you see in here ever actually become reality in you. God doesn't need beautiful branches. He just needs branches attached to his vine that will let his life through. Close your eyes and bow your head with me for a moment this morning. Lord, I'm praying right now. I feel expression and desire to pray right now expressly for that person in this room that does a ton of comparing of themselves to others. By the way, that can happen in two ways. You can compare yourself to others and view yourself as insignificant, or you can compare yourself to others and think you're kind of a big deal. But I can tell you that both are are falsehoods because the only big deals are the people who make themselves of no reputation and That doesn't mean that you won't see astounding things happen. The Bible says that Jesus made himself of no reputation and God exalted him, giving him a name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. He's got the highest position and the highest name and he made himself of no reputation. It's a paradox. It's the craziness of the fact that we're talking about John the Baptist today, but we don't even know who the Tetrarch of Eturia was. It's because the way God does things is so different. And the beauty of that is for the person, wherever you are, whatever your view of yourself is and the things of God, let me say something to you. All you have to do is become available. His life is in you if you've accepted Christ. Now he's just asking you if you'll let him make you an instrument of that life through which his life finds expression. He's not asking you to muster anything up. He's asking you to learn how to relinquish control, how to become malleable in his spirit's power and presence, how to become a treasure chest through which the treasure of his life can be revealed. So much so that the more it gets revealed, the more you come to realize, and others do too, that this power, the excellency of this power being expressed in your life is not from you. It's through you, but it is not from you. This is the heart cry of the Lord. And I tell you, whoever says yes, buckle on your seatbelt.
because there's a great adventure ahead. Would you stand together with me for a moment this morning? Holy Spirit, we just, we're so thankful. We're so thankful to know that we don't just live in a day of knowing what to do and then being expected in the power of our own strength and will to do it, but we live in a day where we are given the opportunity not only to know what to do, but to have the power of your life within us to actually bring it forth. That is, Ezekiel 36, 26 says that you would take out the old stony heart, give us a heart of flesh, give us a new spirit, and then place your spirit within us in order to give us the capacity to keep your commandments and to follow your ordinances. Lord, I pray right now for the person that's in this room that may be saying, well, but you know, you don't know how little I am. Well, how little you are compared to what? All I know is this, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, the least person in this room right now, in God's estimation, is greater than John the Baptist. So what does that say about what God might do through you? With your eyes closed, head bowed for just a moment, I wonder if you are listening and hearing and whether by circumstance that you're in right now, by past pedigree, by comparison to others, there's been an issue in your life, a feeling that your place seemed relatively insignificant to you and you'd acknowledge that. Would you just raise your hand for a moment? Just raise your hand. Nobody needs to see. Praise God. Praise God. I wonder if you'd reach out and take a hand somebody next to you. Just if, if there's only one person next to you, do that. If there's several people, just take a hand somebody next to you. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, don't let us get caught in the falsehood of this world's view of significance. Lord, don't let us measure things the way the world measures them. Don't let us evaluate things the way the world evaluates them. Lord, bring us to a place of higher and, and clearer thinking and perceiving of how you do things. Help us to realize that emperors and kings and governors and high priests are not the secret to success. It's a still small voice. It's the life of Christ in us that is the hope of glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name tonight. Amen. Would you give the Lord praise with me this morning just to thank him for who he is. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you are. So you have to hug. Here's your son. You've got to hug at least three people. And I'm counting. I have people at the door. You won't be able to leave if you don't. The, and, and that's three people besides the date you came with, okay? And look them in the eye and say, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Amen? Okay, you can go. God bless.